World literature is full of stories of love won and love lost. Walls are climbed, battles fought, and parents circumvented in order to unite with one's heart's desire. Some lovers even venture into hell itself. If the New York Times modern love series is any indication, finding love in the 21st century poses its own obstacles, even if there are no three-headed hellhounds. The science of love and relationships is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's departments of statistics and media, journalism, and film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, chair of media, journalism, and film. Today's guest is author and relationship expert Ty Tashiro. Tashiro received his Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Minnesota and is the author of The Science of Happily Ever After and, more recently, Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. He's also worked as a professor at the University of Maryland and the University of Colorado. Thanks so much for being here today, Ty. Hey, thanks for having me. Just I'm going to start with a real softball question. How did the science of relationships become your academic love? <laughs> it was on accident, like most things in my life, I guess. Uh, I was at the University of Minnesota to study trauma, actually, in the psychology department. And while I enjoyed that research and thought it was important, uh, studying trauma is pretty heavy, as you could imagine. Mm -hmm. And I took a course my first semester with Ellen Bershide. And Professor Bershide was one of the first people back in the late 1950s to study relationships using the scientific method. And I found her course to be so fascinating, especially for romantic love, this idea that you could take something that was seemingly so unpredictable and chaotic and haphazard and describe common processes and organize theory and, you know, apply data analytic methods that helped you see patterns in how people uh, form attraction, how they partner up, and what the trajectory of love looks like across the course of decades. Oh, I, I got to follow up that question, Ty. <laughs> okay, you know, studying relationships with scientific methods, you know, that, that's something that I could, could hear saying. That that's what a statistician would do to ruin relationships. <laughs> yeah. So, so well, tell – <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. That is a good question. There was, uh, there was pushback, uh, quite a bit of pushback, in fact, in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, Professor Bershide and some of her colleagues were called before congressional committees to defend their NIH grants wow. uh, on the topic. Uh, there were other attacks from uh, religious groups and uh, other groups out there that said romantic love is a mystery hmm. that is better left unstudied. So people had a very strong reaction to people applying the scientific method to romantic love. Can you, can you give uh, an example of one of the first, the first times this was used, the scientific method was used to, to study romantic love? Yeah, they did... Uh, they did some really elaborate studies uh, uh, back before institutional review boards. And so they uh, found some pretty uh, interesting things in these studies. Uh, one of them that was, uh, I think, done ethically and, and done well was one at the University of Minnesota a Student Union. And before students came into a dance to start the school year, they administered extensive personality tests and uh, IQ batteries and <laughs> a whole host of other things that sound unromantic. And uh, so they had all this data on every single person that was going to attend the dance. And then they waited to see 
who ended up dancing with whom <laughs> and who, when they left upon exit interview, planned to ask that person out on a date. And that was really one of the early studies, correlational studies, descriptive studies, um, looking into this idea of assortative mating. So do we tend to choose partners who are similar to us in demographic variables, um, attitudes, or personality? Ty, you mentioned pushback here from government and uh, and religion, but what about pushback from the academic community that you're you're studying something? This is a little squishy. Um, yeah. She must have, I mean, in your own research and maybe early research, could you talk a little bit about the academy acceptance of applying mm-hmm. science to to uh, em- emotional life, really? Yeah, it was. Uh certainly looked upon with skepticism by other people in the academic community. Uh, in the late 1950s, of course, behaviorism still had a stronghold, mm-hmm. which was amenable to a lot of basic science techniques in the experimental method. And so I think a lot of the early descriptive work and correlational studies done on relationships were seen as uh, probably a waste of time and, and resources. I, I think the thing that got me convinced that this was a worthwhile thing to study was when Professor Bershad said that she doesn't study romantic love just to study romantic love. She was interested in romantic love because it was like a magnifying glass to look at basic psychological processes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about the strongest emotions you've had in your lifetime, a lot of those occurred within the context of your romantic relationships or the most obsessive thoughts (laughs) that you've had in your lifetime. Yes. uh, A lot of those occurred within the context of romantic relationships. And I found that to be true, that it's a great magnifying glass to look at more basic psychological processes. This is reminding me of dealing with 18 and 19 year old students who are really, really (laughs) smart and just totally messed up by their romantic relationships and all of the challenges that they face. Yeah, even the best of us, you know, can can get tripped up by the seeming irrationality of of our romantic relationships. But uh, that's what makes it so interesting, right? Is that how many forces, how many psychological forces in our life can just totally take over? Mm-hmm. our minds. And uh, you're sitting there waiting for a text message back <laughs> from somebody for hours on end and fretting. Uh, there's very, very few domains in life where we'd experience the same kind of obsessiveness and activation. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned that, that some of the first studies were these were observational studies where you're measuring mm-hmm. and then looking at, at correlates of, of certain outcomes with certain, certain input conditions. Can you, can you talk about some of the, one of the first experimental studies that was done to investigate this? You know, one of the first experimental studies uh, sounds pretty simple in hindsight. It was pretty revolutionary at the time, actually. Psychologists are really interested in studying the individual. I think that's what we're good at. Um, what's, what are you thinking in your own mind? Uh, how does a certain stimulus affect your behavior? But, you know, most of our important interactions and most of the important outcomes in our life occur in interpersonal context, whether that's at work with our work colleagues or our bosses. Um, it could be in our romantic life, certainly, or with our friends and, and colleagues. So the idea that you would study psychology and account for two people instead of just one person was actually really unusual. So they did this uh, clever study where they brought people into the lab and they introduced them to some random other uh, participant they had brought into the lab as well. 
the manipulation was really simple. They said, in one condition, in the control condition, uh, we'd like you to work on this a collaborative task with this other person. And it was a game theory type of task. Uh, and at the end of that, you'll be done and, you know, come back to the lab tomorrow for the next part of the study. In the experimental condition, what they said is, this is the person you'll be working with all week in all aspects of the study. Hmm. And they had them do the same task. So what they created in that situation was what we call outcome dependency, which is really just the simple idea that this is going to be someone you have to rely on in the future. And it had remarkably power, powerful effects in how fair and generous people were in the, in the game. And of course, when they were outcome dependent, they were much more likely to be fair. <laughs> they were much more likely to even be generous than people who thought this was just a one-shot deal. I know that sounds really common sense in, in hindsight, but at the time, nobody was doing research like this. Nobody was thinking about how our reliance on other people profoundly affects our own psychological decisions. You're listening to Stats and Stories, the topic today, the science of relationships. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is author and relationship expert Ty Tashiro. Now, Ty, you mentioned a little earlier that um, researching romantic love was seen as maybe not as uh, academically rigorous or wasn't quite given the same kind of um, respect maybe other areas of academia were. And as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking back to the work of like Alfred Kinsey and sort of the kind of controversies they faced when they were asking co-eds about their sex lives um, and when they were, you know, traveling around the country interviewing, um, you know, people about what they were doing behind closed doors. And and, and the fact that, you know, lawmakers have wanted to strip money from the Kinsey Institute in a, a number of times over the years. Has has romantic relationships, uh, uh, this kind of work that you're doing, face that kind of controversy, or is it really more people just don't think that it's worth investigating often because it's emotional, and we tend to sort of value emotional life less than we do other aspects of life? I, I think the work that Kinsey did was was important, of course, and continues to be, but uh, it was just <laughs> more alarming, I think, on the yes. surface. Yes, yeah, I would uh, agree. <laughs> uh, especially given the times. And so I, I think they were certainly under much more constant duress than people who were studying romantic love or romantic relationships. But, uh, you know, as you look back from the ninth, late 1950s through really the mid-1970s, there was a lot of opposition um, from a lot of different sectors about people conducting this work. Mm-hmm. So what, what's been the biggest surprise for you in this, in this work as you looked at the literature, as you've done your own research? Oh, it's been, I've been surprised at almost every, <laughs> at almost every turn. Oh, that's great. To say. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's great as a researcher because you're always uh, really interested and re- really invested. And, you know, you're so intrigued because you're, you're not certain what you're going to find. Things that you think are common sense from your real life experience turn out to be, turn out to be counterintuitive. I, I think one of the things that's been most interesting to me is just how strongly evolutionary forces Mm. still have an impact on the kinds of mates we think are good mates to select. And it happens in such a subconscious way that we don't always realize that's happening. Um, But let's take something like physical attractiveness. So if you ask people what they want in a romantic partner, 
they'll give you the socially desirable responses. So they'll say they want someone kind or someone with good character, you know, all, all these things that are good things to want in a partner. But if you actually watch what they do, so if you watch them in a speed dating study or observe their online behavior, what you find is that men prioritize physical attractiveness as the number one variable that they're going to maximize on. And women, uh, it's the second most maximized variable of physical attractiveness. Hmm. So it's different than their self-report. And then you wonder, well, why physical attractiveness? And the thinking about that is that physical attractiveness was a visible indicator of underlying genetic health. Mm -hmm. So for most of human history, of course, life expectancies were you know, under 40 years old, and the chances of you dying or your offspring dying were very high. And so you wanted to get somebody with uh, the best genes possible so that your offspring had the best chances of passing along your genes to subsequent generations. And so here you see this thing where we don't always think about the root cause of it, but boy, it's sure a powerful factor in shaping how we select partners and what we prize as the most valued traits. Mm -hmm. I, as as the woman in this interview, I would like to know what the number one thing that women were choosing. Yeah, so uh, evolutionary psychologists would say it's resources, uh, ah. which takes the form of socioeconomic status. Yeah, mm, very interesting. Yeah, Ty, you do you do something that not a lot of academics do. You write for public audiences. So oh. uh, you know, I've read some of your stuff in Popular Science and Time. Talk about why you started doing that, what that was like. It's very different writing for a public audience than it is for other academics. Talk, talk about that change. And, by the way, you're a very good writer. So. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. It uh, has not always been the case. <laughs> I can, talk I about that transition. That. Yeah, sure. You know, I was at the University of Colorado, and uh, I, I was just could not get out of my head that there was all this great relationship science, uh, some of it well-replicated and, and robust, that I thought that information could be helpful to people if, they, if you just gave folks the information. Um, that alone could be something that could help them improve their relationships. You know, I don't like to tell people a lot of times what to do with their lives. I, I think most of us don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> but I do like the idea of giving people information in a way that's really user-friendly and appealing and practical. And I guess that's what led to the jump, was just this pull and this uh, feeling that that was something that I needed to do. I also like to tell stories, I guess, ever since I was a kid. I, yes. I just enjoy hearing stories. I like to tell stories. And, of course, romantic stories are uh, full of all kinds of different plot tensions along the way and uh, sometimes highs and lows. Mm -hmm. And I thought this would be a fun book to write, just to tell some uh, romantic stories that people could relate to, have those stories set up common problems that people encounter uh, in their search for happily ever after, and then give them, give them some really great data um, that not only just cites, you know, what, I, what makes me nervous is when popular press writers just cite one study, and mm -hmm. you know as a researcher there's actually hundreds on that same topic. And so I, I was also interested in this idea of how can you uh, convey a consensus or convey best practices rather than just singular studies through popular press writing. Mm -hmm. well, you so have... I think those were the motivations. And yes. it was a hard thing to learn how to 
<laughs> how to write in a way that was different than the way I wrote for journal yeah. art, journal articles because uh, it's a totally different style. What what you say though about story? I mean, that's this is what you know. G- good journalists who write complicated stories about data all, often will start with the story in order to get to get into the audience. You know, to to hook them. Mm-hmm. That's that's the way most of us understand and our experience. It's the easiest way. Um, so how do you how do you make decisions when you write about how much data you're going to bring in, how you're going to talk about it, where you're going to place it in, when you're writing for a public audience? I think the data is primary. Mm-hmm. So I, I usually have it that, hey, there's a idea I need to convey at, at some point in this book, um, pr- probably as a chapter. And then what I'll do is I'll go back to the catalog of ridiculous events in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll say, uh, you know, I like that because it's disarming, right? Especially if it's self-deprecating. Yes. um, Because now you got people with their defenses down a little bit. It's not that I want to persuade anybody without them thinking about it. In fact, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do want for people to relax a little bit and maybe have a little bit of a chuckle. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I haven't set up this problem that they're like, yes, I, I have totally faced that problem of not being able to ask somebody out that I've pined for for months, mm-hmm. you know, yes. and then to give them some data about, hey, here's some things you can do uh, that would be helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And think about your own situation, of course, but now think about applying that. So I think about it as if I can tell a, a story that o- opens us up, maybe let's say the first quarter of the chapter. I think that's pretty good. And then let's get in some data. I like to revisit the story somewhere in the middle of the chapter, uh, what we would call a second plot point. Yes. And then uh, go back to the data. And then I usually end the chapter with a story being funny or sappy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, one of the two. And I find that ties things up nicely. That's great. You know, one one thing you just mentioned was the idea of uh, that there's lots of, you mentioned, well-replicated research out there. And certainly, you know, the, the American Statistical Association has published p-value statements in recent years, and there's been a, a, a real concern about reproducibility in science. So I think that's that's something that clearly has a, a, a broad appeal. So you're, you know, you're saying that there's this, this work has been has been uh, reproduced with different populations and different in, by different researchers, huh? That, that's right. So there's some really great cross-cultural studies, uh, some of them including over 80 countries, uh, mm-hmm. and you find these effects replicate across uh, place and, and culture and even time now, right? Because it's maturing to a point where relationship science has been around long enough that can, we can see, hey, something we found in 1960s isn't replicating in 1980 and now in the 2000s. Um, so there is a chance to, to look at that and look at meta-analyses and other ways to judge whether you know, this is quality data where you can then give it to somebody and say, hey, look, I've, I've put in my due diligence here, and I'm pretty confident this is a robust effect. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on the science of love. Our guest is relationship expert and author Tai Tashiro. Uh, Richard asked the question uh, a bit ago about sort of the way data journalists present information, and I wonder if you could give some advice, Tai, to maybe a general assignment reporter who's being asked to write about a study about relationship science. How could someone who maybe isn't well-versed in this area 
um, approach the story in a way that's thoughtful uh, and that that doesn't sort of um, you know uh, sensationalize the report the the study itself or make it seem like this is a one shot thing or or mm. or doesn't sort of place it in its context. Yeah, I, I guess one of the things that gets me is the use of superlatives mm. <laughs> in re- in reporting. And you'll see this is the one thing you need to do to find lasting love. Which that's appealing. Sometimes even I'll click on it. But of course that's not true, right? And of course, even a study that had, let's say, a medium effect size or sometimes even a large effect size, you know, overall in this complex process that might have accounted for five percent of the variance at most. So it's just, I think staying away from these overgeneralizations and these really dramatic statements would be the easiest thing to do. Uh, You know, I I think a a great question that I encourage people to ask is if they do an interview with somebody, just simply to to say, hey, would there be somebody who is also an expert in this area Mm -hmm. who would disagree with you? And I found people to be very honest about that. And if they... Uh, sometimes they'll just give a much more thorough explanation and a much more balanced explanation when you push a little bit with mm. questions like that. Um, other times, I guess if they didn't, you could go follow up with the person that they mentioned. But uh, I've I found that if you just trust people just a little bit in a, of course, in a kind way, they respond well to that. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing you mentioned a little bit earlier was the idea that there's some things that have been changing over time that that when there's, this research has been going on now long enough that that can be investigated. So what, what are particular characteristics of, of relationships that seem to be evolving with times and what seem to be relatively stable? I think that one of the great areas to see this is with the theory that relationship scientists call exchange theory. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a really simple model. It's the same model they use over in the economics department or the business school to predict when people will sell their house or sell a stock or uh, buy a stock or or buy a house. And it's really just three variables. It's what do you want? What do you aspire to? What do you think you're getting? And what are your attractive alternative options? So, you know, uh, other things you could, you could buy. And if you take that same model and you apply it to relationships, it's actually a great predictor Mm -hmm. of when people will commit to a relationship and whether they'll stay committed to a relationship. Now, I think one of the things that's changed with those three variables is the prevalence of attractive alternative options uh, because of online dating and because of apps. And so people have the perception, whether it's real or not, I don't know, I guess, but people have the perception that there's an unlimited number of attractive alternative options, especially in urban areas like, like New York City. And that's really, I think, thrown relationships a big curveball. And I think as a collective society, we're still trying to figure out how to how to handle this. And of course, the age of marriage is now around 28, 29 years old, which is about seven, eight years later than it was for baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of sociologists say, well, uh, millennials will just marry later. I, I don't see why that would be a strong assumption to make. (laughs) And so I think we're really in this interesting period of time where we'll see how people decide to formalize their relationships uh, or if they decide to. Mm -hmm. 
we couldn't have this interview complete finish it up without asking you what is your res- what research advice you, would you give a listener that's that's thinking about looking for a, a partner <laughs> so what's what, what, what kind of what does what what would re- what does science say in terms of strategies for for partner selection that you might share Sure. Uh, and maybe talk a little bit about online dating, right? Which is how my daughter got married last year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'll, I'll try to combine that into, into one here. So I think you can, I know the term gets overused these days, but I think you can moneyball, actually, <laughs> your dating life. And <laughs> if you look at the traits that predict long-term satisfaction and stability, um, we have a lot of data, actually, about the traits that actually matter. Now, we know that people tend to choose on physical attractiveness and socioeconomic status as two of their top three traits, right, when they're looking for a partner. Mm -hmm. We also know that physical attractiveness does not predict satisfaction or stability. Uh, Actually, the return on physical attractiveness is negative for heterosexual women. Uh, And socioeconomic socioeconomic status only matters after you pass the poverty line. Hmm. So as long as you clear that, uh, then there's a diminishing return. So these aren't great predictors. So then that begs the question, which traits are? And it's things that are totally unexciting. (laughs) 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 20-year-old, you know. uh, Getting someone who's nice is, I I can't stress how important that is. And if someone gets called a nice guy or, you know, a nice woman, it's almost insulting in our culture, <laughs> yeah. but it's, you know, one of the best things you can get. They will be generous. They will be fair. They will be uh, dedicated to being empathic, being empathically accurate mm-hmm. about things. So they'll actually be better at intuiting what you're feeling or thinking. Um, another thing is emotional stability. Uh, the flip side of that is neuroticism. <laughs> now, you're like, well, of course, you know, we should get someone who's emotionally stable, but if you look at these behavioral studies, what you find is that emotional st- stability is ranked like eighth to tenth usually in the list of priorities. Really? Uh, yeah, and it is the strongest predictor of relationship satisfaction. It's the strongest and of relationship stability yeah. of any of the personality variables. So if you just took those two variables and you chose on you prioritize those about physical attractiveness and socioeconomic status you've all of a sudden created this inflection point in your chances of finding a happily ever after or a satisfying and stable relationship. Um, I just wanted to speak real quick, too, to the online dating. This happens all the time in online dating when people set filters. Mm-hmm. People oh. think of filters as preferences, but those are hard stop choices oh. <laughs> that they're making. So if they say they want a man, for example, who's six foot or taller, they've just removed 80% of their pool. Because only 20% of men in the United States are six foot or taller. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times people don't think about the consequences of these small preferences for who that leaves available in their dating pool. So it sounds like you would advocate for a dating site that has no pictures and that has a, a scale of emotional stability on it. Yeah, that would, boy, that would be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking for a happily ever after, that would give you the information you need and uh, <laughs> What was it? It was uh, OK Cupid actually ran a study on that. It was a random assignment study where they took down the profile pictures for half of their users <laughs> for, a, for a full day. And what they found was when the pictures were down, 
people had more conversations back and forth. Wow. They were more likely to actually go on a date with the people they were talking to. And they were more likely to go on a second date uh, with the people that they talked to while the photos were down. So if you remove some of these more superficial variables, the suggestion is, is that you might be able to achieve some really meaningful differences. Wow. That, that's good stuff that, that we're that's, learning here. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, <laughs> so they're going to people are going to be listening to this episode now, with, taking notes. <laughs> that's right. We were we were all taking notes frantically while you were talking. Well, I say too for people who have already chosen yeah. uh, their partners. Um, you know, one of the nice things I think about thinking about how you prioritize the traits that you want in a partner, um, even if it's post hoc, is. Uh, Sometimes you realize just how lucky you are, because that's something that happens in long-term relationships as we start to take for granted all of these wonderful subtleties mm-hmm. about our romantic partners, because we habituate as humans. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's nice to remember, like, oh, yeah, my partner is super nice, you know, <laughs> and really kind and generous, and I, I seem to have forgotten that a little bit. All right, Ty, well, thank you so much for being here this afternoon. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thanks so much. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program. Send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. (laughs) 